May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The very first time I was in love was in the second grade. The object of my adoration was Mrs. Thomas, my teacher. She was lovely. And I think she would have gone out with me, too, except she said there was some rule about teachers dating students. Um, I think it was a silly rule, but uh, that's the way it was. I think one of the saddest days of my life up to that point was graduating from the second grade and going on to the third grade. I had to leave Mrs. Thomas's class to go to Mrs. Prout's class. Mrs. Prout was about 108 years old, and she had a face befitting somebody whose last name was Prout. Um, turned out that Mrs. Prout was actually quite nice, and we got along swimmingly, and um, uh, it, was a, it was a very easy time. In fact, all of grade school I found to be a very easy time. It came kind of naturally to me. Academics were easy, and mostly what you did was just follow rules. Um, all my peers did the same things. We were just rule followers, and grade school was made up of lots of rules. And there were little people and big people, and the big people made the rules, and the little people did what the big people told them to. And it was, it was a pretty simple world. You know, here's how you make a cursive A. No, that's too tall. That's too wide. That's too whatever. Just do it like this. Oh, that's good. Now do it 50 more times, and you have it down. That's, that was the whole world back then. I remember in gym class having to climb the rope that went all the way to the rafters. Anybody else have to do that in your gym class when you were a kid? And, and you remember that when you're little, everything is bigger, right? Do you remember going back to the swimming pool you used to swim at when you were a kid? And it used to be like a lake, and then it's all of a sudden it's really small. And, and, well, climbing the rope in gym class was like climbing a 1,000 feet into the air, right? It was climbing Everest. But you had to do it. And, and I was terrified of it, um, not least of which was because it was a 1,000 feet. But the padding on the floor that was supposed to brace your fall was about three-quarters of an inch thick. I mean, it was a tiny little mat. If you fell, you were going to die. Um, but Mr. Lawson was there, the gym teacher, and, um, and he towered over all of us, and he said, climb the rope, and we said, yes, sir. And so we climbed the rope, frightened though we might be. If you couldn't climb to the top, you had to do it again on the next gym day, constantly climbing the rope. Grade school had rules. Lots of them. Most of us followed them. We didn't even realize that there was an alternative. At least I didn't. Until I met John Hughes. John Hughes had a different view of rules. He didn't like them. And he didn't follow them. And so most of the time he spent his time in the, in the principal's office. His desk was always moved off like on an island by itself sometimes, you know. You know that kid, right? John, it was John. He was always getting his desk moved out and... and um, he was always getting reprimanded for some misdemeanor or another. He was always in trouble. And I worried about John. I, I remember carrying this angst about him, you know, that uh, how does he do this? How does he live with himself? How does he go through his days with such, with such you know, bad behavior? And then one day I was paired up with him for some assignment at school. I think my teacher thought, Joey's such a good kid. You know, we'll pair him up with John, and maybe John will become a good kid like Joey. I think that's what she thought. I discovered that John was a very likable chap. Um, he was funny, he was smart, and he was accepting. I mean, he would, he would just take you as you were. And we became kind of fast friends. One day I show up at school, 
and I had a couple pieces of Bazooka Joe bubble gum. It was the double-sized ones, too. You remember those double They're probably all double-sized now. But back in the day, they were single-sized and double-sized. These were two double-sized. And I was a poor kid. I never had money for candy. So I don't know how I scored these couple pieces. But I had them in my pocket. And down below the desk, I got in the class first thing. And I, John is sitting next to me. And I pull him out of the pocket. And I'm like... I got one for you at recess. Now, there was a rule about no chewing gum in school. Of course, there was a rule. Um, but recess was sort of a gray area. We really weren't sure. We think that we were allowed. Maybe it was just overlooked. Not sure. But I'm showing him, look, we have gum. When it comes to recess time, we're going to be out having a grand time. This will be fantastic. But then my teacher... And this is one of the teachers whose name has been stricken from my memory since that day. I don't know how it is. I can't remember her name. But I remember her saying... Joey Boisel, stand up. And I did. And she said, come to my desk. So I walked up there and she says, show me what's in your pocket. Oh, no. You know, and I reached down in and I, I pull out my two pieces of double-sized Bazooka Joe bubble gum. One was grape and the other was regular flavor. And I show them to her and she snatches them out of my hand. She opens her desk drawer. She places them in the desk drawer, closes the door, drawer and says, you can have them back at the end of the day. I slunk back to my desk with my head hanging low, really sad, just all dejected. And I kind of go along until the bell rings for recess. I get up and everybody rushes to the door. You remember how you do in grade school? Everybody rushes to the door. But John grabs me by the shirt and pulls me back and says, no, let's be last. And I thought that was an odd thing to say. Let's be last. We should be first. No, let's be last. And so everybody lines up single file and the teacher turns off the light. And then like a shepherd, she goes out the door, leading their little sheep behind her. And we all file out until John and I get to the door and he pulls me back once again. And he says, let's get the gum. I said, no, it's in her drawer. He said, but it's not locked. And it's your gum. The, the logic was compelling. In the Bible, we have two temptation stories. In the Old Testament lesson, Genesis 3, and in the New Testament, or the Gospel lesson, Mark chapter 1. In, in the Old Testament lesson, the man and woman are uh, facing a temptation in the garden. And in, um, in, in Mark's Gospel, of course, Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In the Old Testament lesson, we have two people who have never broken God's law. And in the gospel lesson, the same, Jesus has never broken God's law. In the, Old, in the Old Testament lesson, the man and the woman in the garden have but one law to follow. We're on our knees through that whole Ten Commandments. Ten laws we have. They had one. One law. Don't eat from this tree. <laughs> you see this tree over here? Don't eat from this one. See all the other trees? Have at it. But this one, no. This is strictly forbidden. And so um, it, the, there's two stories that are set side by side. I wanted to do just a little bit of contrast and comparison for you this morning and then make a little application about it. The first one is this. The couple in, in paradise, this story that is pretty familiar even to people who aren't biblically literate, the uh, story of a man and woman who are in a garden, they're in paradise. They're in a garden, an ancient garden. A river runs through it, the Bible says. And... Um, and everything is good. The, the, the man lives in harmony with the animals. He names them. There's a sense of, of safety and security. And, and one day he falls asleep and he wakes up and there's a woman there. And in the Bible, the very first words of recorded human speech are poetry. 
The man is so stunned, he wakes up and starts singing a song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And in Hebrew, it has this nice rhythmic kind of sound. Um, Isha from Ish, you know, the sense of woman from man. It's beautiful. There's harmony and peace and tranquility. Now think about Jesus and his temptation story. Mark's really brief. It's just two sentences long, but we get a lot out of it. It's pregnant with with, uh, meaning. Jesus is in the wilderness. His only companions are wild animals. And Mark wants us to think about that, not in a sense that, oh, Jesus could tame the wild animals like some, you know, ancient, uh, I don't know, whatever, Crocodile Dundee. It was like, I don't even know if he tamed one. Anyway, like he wants us to see this in, in a way that we would be if we were in the wilderness with the wild animals. The wild animals are ferocious. They are, um, they are violent. Um, the word can be used, uh, the word for wild animals can be used metaphorically of humans. And we do that in English as well, don't we? If we say, that person is an animal, he's a beast. We don't mean that in a flattering way. Well, not usually. Sometimes we do, like, oh, that guy's a beast. But mostly, if, if, if a person's an animal, it's a bad thing. Wild animals that are with Jesus, it's a sense of, um, of disharmony. A, a fearful place. And so you have the, the first humans in paradise, Jesus in the wilderness. A second contrast in comparison, and that is um, the couple were close in proximity to God. God is in the garden. There's no question that God is in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, right? It, it, it's God who does all the, the, um, the, the, the speaking to the, the humans that he, he says to the man, you know, for instance, uh, eat of all the trees, but not this one. God is in communication in that way, in a verbal communication. In fact, God takes the man. Think about this, this image of uh, takes with his hands, takes the man and places him in the garden. It's a, it's a real close kind of uh, tangibility, isn't it? A very intimate set. God forms the humans as if with, with his hands. Not like in Genesis 1 where God is speaking and everything happens off in a distance. No, he is right there in the garden. When the man is, is, is created, what does God do? He, he leans down and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. A Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says this has the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. This is this close kind of a, a gathering together that God is, is very close to the humans. Now think about Jesus and what happens to him. Here's what Mark says in his text. And the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Ekbale in Greek. Threw him out. Cast him out. It's not like, oh, come, uh, let me lead you by the hand. No, this is it's the push out, the throw out. It's like what we do with garbage, which reminds me tomorrow's trash day. You, you throw it out. You put it out. You push it out. Right? You, this is what happens to Jesus. He is cast out into this. Somebody's going to call me too and say, Joe, tomorrow, today's trash day. Um, you, you get rid of it. This is what happens to Jesus. It's a very violent, very harsh, rough verb that is used here. And so the, the first humans, close proximity to God. Jesus driven from God's presence out into the wilderness. One more, a third contrast comparison, and that is that the couple have each other. The couple have each other in the garden, and in the story of the temptation, they have each other. 
I think a lot of people make assumptions about this text. They read through this text usually knowing what they anticipate to read, and they miss a really important part about it. They, I, people often assume, and I think for many years I probably did the same, that, um, that here the woman is um, off one day by herself, maybe she went and had her nails done, and she stops by um, this tree and the serpent happens to be there and they enter in this conversation whilst the man is out getting the oil changed in the car or whatever else he's doing, that they're separated and, and she enters into this theological dialogue and, and gets tripped up and, and later shows up at, at the house and says, oh, you've got to try this, it's really good. Um, that's not what happened. Can I read the text to you? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to desire to, be make, to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. She gave some to her husband who was with her. All along, this dirty, rotten scoundrel is right there doing nothing to stop what is happening. You know, St. Paul in the New Testament several times lays the sin of humanity at the feet of Adam, not Eve. Never. And never in any, and I have ever read in any Jewish literature has, has the woman ever been suggested as being the one at fault. Always Adam. The man and woman had each other. Jesus was alone. The pronouns Mark uses in these two little short sentences are all first person singular. The Spirit drove him, that is Jesus, into the wilderness. He was alone in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted by the Satan. Always the, the, the first person singular, or, or third person, yeah, third person singular. He, always the, 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 the singular version of that. Jesus was alone while they had each other in the garden. And now you might say, oh, but doesn't it say something in the text about the angels ministering to him? You remember that part, and the angels ministered to him or were ministering to him? This goes back to the wild animals. Jesus is in the wilderness with the wild animals. In the ancient world, in his world, people thought of the wild animals as being in league with the devil. They were, um, they were part of the forces of evil. They were sort of under the the authority of the devil. And, and so you would see wild animals as being, as being uh, evil themselves. Let me read to you just a little passage from an, uh, a, a book written in, in Jesus' world, a Jewish book called the Testament of Natali. And it says this, The devil will flee from you, wild animals will be afraid of you, and the angels will stand by you. Jesus is all alone. Mark says the angels were ministering to him. I think he means that the angels were preserving Jesus' life from the wild animals. But these unseen forces were unseen to him. That they were the angels who were holding back the wild animals. Mark is wanting us to know that Jesus' life was spared, but not that his sense of safety and security. He's all alone. So what's my point? What do we make of this? Are these, these contrast comparisons? The first one is this. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. Always in the Bible, it is the Satan, the serpent, the dragon. It's, it's, it's a definite article always placed before there, usually not translated in English. It's the, you know, they'll say Satan came or something. But in, in Hebrew and in Greek, it's always the, the Satan, um, ha diablos. It's, it's always the. 
there is an article because there is a, a, a belief in a real personified evil, the devil, the Satan. I know that probably sounds to modern ears, uh, ears that have been saturated in a secular culture that has um, so tried to demythologize the world that, that, that there's no sense that there is personified evil. This is why I think secularism is one of the greatest evils we face because it gets us to believe that there's no such thing. That the spiritual world is just sort of pie in the sky, that uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, we all go to heaven, whatever, everything's going to be great and grand, and, and God's like a great grandpa, and there's nothing really to worry about. There is a real personified evil in the world that seeks to kill and to steal and to destroy. We saw it this week. A young man walks into a school with a loaded gun and begins to shoot indiscriminately at, at, at adults and students. Kills 17 people. And that's the 18th time it happened this year in the United States of America. 18 times this year. It's February the 18th. There is real evil in this world. And it seeks to to influence and to drag people into that. But let me tell you what it also means. It means that people matter. If we didn't matter, then what would be the use in trying to tempt us? What would be the use in trying to exploit us? What would be the use in trying to get rid of us? We matter. We matter to each other. We matter to, uh, to God. We matter. We, we're valuable. When I went on my sabbatical this year, I remember people were saying to me, you know, they found out that I'm taking a backpack and doing all public transportation and I'm going through Europe on my way to the Middle East, and, and they would say to me, um, you know, things like, aren't you afraid? You know, <laughs> aren't you scared? I'd be terrified to do that. You know, how can you do that? Well, I would think to myself, do you know where you live? <laughs> do you, are, you, are you aware of where you live? You know, there's a lot of violence around us. One of the things that, that hits me and should hit us all is the frighteningly similar pattern about these school shootings. That they're more alike places that we're familiar with. They're more like Stowe and Aurora and Hudson than they are inner city Cleveland or Detroit. There is a real force at work that is evil in this world. And the Bible calls it the Satan, the devil, the serpent, whatever other uh, synonyms. And, and we ought to be aware of that because if we know who our enemy is and we know that we're in a battle, that's the first stages in being defended against it. The second thing is this, that while our first parents lost their battle with this enemy, Jesus did not. He gained victory over temptation I think this says to us, among other things, that Christ understands the hardship that he went through, the difficult pattern. Our first parents faced temptation in paradise. He faced temptation in a a wilderness and in the world. The writers of the Hebrews said this in chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Let us have confidence 
that Jesus has gone through this thing and come out the other side so we can draw near to Him. We can come close to the throne of grace. I I would love to really play with this idea of throne of grace because I think there's a lot here. I'm just going to kind of throw this out and, and then move on. In the, in the ancient world, in Israel, there was a temple in Israel. This was the one place where, where Jews gathered for worship. And, and in this temple, there was, as I told you before, it was built in a similar structure to here, where there was an outer court, a holy place, and a holy of holies. And in this holy of holies, only the priest, the high priest, could go, and only once a year. And in there was a, a box that was about the size of that altar. And inside the box was, uh, were three things. Um, Aaron's staff, um, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and a, a jar of manna. And, and that, that box had a lid and it was closed. And on top of it set two statues of angels facing the center. And what we see in the center, right, in, this, in, our, in an altar here with the, the chalice and the paten, the, the, the bread and the wine for Holy Communion, was an empty space in Israel. And that's the space where God sat. That was the throne. When the writer to the Hebrews says, let us draw to the throne of grace, I think he has in his mind this image. Let us come forward to the place where Christ is present in this world so that we can find help in time of need. That Holy Communion does something inside of us. It changes us. It is a power. It is grace that helps us in time of need. I would like to go more of that, but moving on. Third thing, um, whereas I think the struggle with the man and the woman in the garden brought death, the, the Christ's victory over temptation was the first step in bringing life. And we ourselves can have victory over sin and temptation. We do not always live in that victory, it's for sure, but we can. Through the grace and mercy of God, we can find power to turn from evil and do good. If we do not turn to Christ, if we do not look to Christ, we have nothing. Our will will be enslaved by sin. And there will be no choice. But the mercy of God gives us the power to turn away from from evil and do good. I think this is why Lenten fasts are important, why it's important to give stuff up during Lent. Because it's like exercising a muscle, (laughs) you know? You ever, like, work on a muscle group you hadn't worked on before? Especially those ones in the backside of your arm. I don't know what they're called. Um, Mine aren't very strong at all. Uh, I remember going to a personal trainer a couple years ago, and she was, like, showing me to do these these little, and they was, like, really light weights. They didn't weigh very I'm embarrassed to tell you how little they weighed. Okay, and and so I was lifting them. I mean, they were only, like, 100 pounds. I'm joking. Um, And I was lifting them. And the next day, my arm hurt so bad, I thought I was going to cry. Uh, I told her I was never coming back. Um, these little muscles that we don't use, if we start to use them, we build strength, but at first it hurts. Lenten fasts are like that. If we can give up chocolate, <laughs> meat on Fridays, perish the thought, beer, you know, we can somehow learn to understand what it means to give up things that are real temptations just by exercising some spiritual strength. Back in the fourth grade, um, I remember in that classroom, lights are out, dim in there, John Hughes lurking over my shoulder. Take the gum. It's yours. Yeah. I could have said, 
you know, I had two choices, right? Yeah, I'm going to do it or no, I don't want to. Here's the truth. I didn't want to. When he, when he said that to me, everything inside me was like, no, that's, I, I can't do that. But I did. I took it. And we went outside and we opened it up and read the comic, chewed the gum, chewed it really hard, all the way through recess, played games and all the things we wanted to. You know, I kind of remember that the gum didn't taste that good that day and the games weren't that fun. And I had this knot, you know, that knot right in your stomach, that thing that wouldn't go away. We go back to class after that that recess at lunch, and um, I don't know when it was, sometime later, the teacher says, Joey Boisel, you want to come to my desk, please? And I walk up there, and she says, the gum is missing from my desk. Do you know anything about this? Yes, ma'am. Did you take it? Yes, ma'am. Was John with you? Yes, ma'am. Both of you to the principal's office right now. I thought about this. This was 40 years ago. Saying 40 years ago makes me feel really old, right? But 40, this was 40 years ago. And 40 years ago, do you know what the penalty for taking something out of a teacher's desk was? Yeah. It was a lecture. And then put your hands on the desk, assume the position, I'm coming around behind. Man, they hurt. Oh, wow, did that hurt. I think he lifted me off the ground, you know. Probably weighed 40 pounds, you know, up in the air. <laughs> John, my friend John, for him this is all in a day's work, you know. <laughs> He's used to it. But not for me. It was devastating to me. It wasn't just the pain on my backside. It was, it was the embarrassment. It was the loss of innocence, knowing that I'd done something wrong and been caught and maybe if I hadn't been caught, it would have been even worse. I'm going to shock you here. That wasn't my last sin. <laughs> Twice more since then, I've done something wrong. St. Catherine of Siena, I think it was, said, We won't always struggle with sin. Or, excuse me, we will always struggle with sin, but hopefully it's not always the same sin. I like that. That's helpful to me. Um, Here's the truth. We are always going to struggle with sin. And we are going to fail. It's going to happen. But that doesn't mean it has to. And that doesn't mean we need to go into life with the expectation of failing. Because if we expect to fail, we're certainly going to fail. The truth is that Christ has given us power to have victory over sin, to have victory over temptation. And if we long for grace, and if we put ourselves in the pathway of grace... We can experience that grace and we can have life and health and wellness. It can happen. We can say yes to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.